hope you all are enjoying the study of Judges. We're almost halfway through. I cannot believe it. When I was working on the lesson for um, the next one, I'm already working on Gideon. Um, I thought, wow, that's lesson five. We're ha- almost halfway. But I'm, I'm having fun with this study. I hope you all are having fun. And it's certainly been really refreshing and fun for me after having spent a year and a half in Romans. Love Romans, but this is fun. <laughs> Let's pray, shall we? God, we just want to come before you this morning and thank you for who you are and commit our study time to you and ask you to pour out your presence in this room. Help us, Father, to understand what it is you are doing with Deborah, Barak, Sisera, Jabin, and Jael, and at this period of time in the history of Israel, that we might see not only the details and, and uh, what, what happened, the, the historical events, but more importantly, Father, that we would see your hand in it and that we would come away wanting to praise you and glorify you. And Father, I also pray as a result of this lesson that we'll be able to step back and look at our own lives and see how in your providence you are working your will and your purposes, not only for your church, not only for your plan of history and redemption, but also in our individual lives. That we will come away, Father, with confidence, renewed confidence, that you are in control of all events, of all moments, And that, Father, we can trust you. We can know that you are with us. May this lesson and the subsequent lessons, and even the lessons we've already done that we might sit down and reflect back on, give us great encouragement and hope in our faith walk with you and with your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we commit our time to you now, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we give you all glory and honor. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we've come to Judges 4 and 5, Deborah and Barak. This is a familiar story. And one thing I have, I did not put in the lesson, and I don't know that I verbally said to you, but one word of caution on these familiar stories, especially if you learned them as a child. You really have to make yourself step back and look at all the details and all the events as if you've never seen it before. And that's challenging to do. It really is. But you're going to see more. And you also may find out that some of your um, presuppositions about what you think, about how God is working in these people's lives, or about the decisions that they made, um, might not be correct. You might see it differently after having studied it this way, as, especially as an adult and not as a child. So with that said, what is the very first thing that happens, very first verse, repeated refrain, what is it? Okay, and the people of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, it's interesting, sin's not very original, is it? It's really kind of monotonous and boring. There's nothing new under the sun if you think about it. They, they are doing the same thing all over again, and what's sad is God sells them into the hand of of whom? Who's got control over them? Jabin. And who is Jabin? King of Canaan. Now, what's ironic about that? What should be the situation? What is the situation? 
They should have been been dead, should have been driven out. Here we have the Israelites should be the ones possessing the land, living in the land, free from their enemy, and instead they're being subdued by the people in Canaan. They are the ones under their rulership. It's all backwards. And did you all see how that cycle, that cycle is there again, isn't it? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sells them into the hand of Jabin who cruelly oppresses them. They cry out. God raises up Deborah and Barak, and they have a period of rest for, as you will see next week, with Gideon. It'll start all over again. So cycle all over. Okay, as we unpack this narrative and this drama, and it is a drama. It's really very interesting. Let's get the main characters up here on the board, shall we? Tell me who, who, are, the, who, are, the, who are the players? In this, in this narrative. Okay, we have Jabin. And who is Jabin? He is king of Canaan. Who else? We have Deborah. Who's Deborah? Okay, she's a judge. How do I know that? <laughs> Thank you, Diane. I appreciate that. What, how, what kind of judge is she? How is she a little bit different than the judges we've seen so far? She actually judges. You know, I think it was last week I gave you a definition of a judge. A judge is more, it's not what we tend to think of as a judge. It's not an Antonio Scalia who died this week, who sits on a court and wears a black robe and cases are brought to him and they hear arguments and then they issue a decision you'll see played out, they're more a military deliverer, someone that delivers them from the oppression of the enemy. But with Deborah, we actually see she seems to be doing some of this, what traditional, what we would have in our minds, role of a judge, of people coming to her and her judging the situation. She's a prophetess. What else? She's a woman. That is significant in that culture. She's not only a woman, she's also what? She's a wife. Yeah, she's a busy... Well, yeah, they'd be chosen by God because God, they would be God's spokesperson, so God would speak to them, and then on behalf of God, then they would speak. So it would, it would be a... Mm-hmm. Yeah, think about some of the, um, the prophets in, in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah. I, Jeremiah, God calls him because Jeremiah resisted. These are, these are people that God has put a calling on them to speak forth his word. And if you do, we did that study on them. A lot of them are a little reluctant, and, and, and well so, because they're going against people that don't want to hear them. Okay, So she's a woman, a wife, a judge, a prophetess. She's... she's Quite a woman, isn't she? She really is. Anything else you want to add to this description about Deborah? Okay. She was respected, wasn't she, because people went to her? We don't really hear anything negative about her at all, do we? Yeah. Do do you think it would be appropriate to say she's a godly woman? Would that be stretching the text? I think she is. Okay, who's our next person in this narrative? 
Dust, okay, I heard two. Who do you want to do? Barak. And who is he? Yeah, he's going to lead this army, right? So he's going to lead the army. So he is a leader. Do we know anything else about him? Okay, you say he's disobedient. I'm not going to write that down because I'm going to challenge that, okay? Let's just put God commanded him. God commanded him to go and to be the one to lead the troops to defeat Jabin, to defeat Sisera. We'll look at him in a minute and, and Jabin. So um, he is God's chosen person to go and lead this battle. So we do know that about him. Anything else? Uh, he's what? He's from Naphtali. Okay, yeah, he's from Naphtali. So he is a Jewish. He is from one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. He, he's the son of a Benonim. And I don't know what, if, what significance that would be. I have no idea. That's who he is. So I didn't rabbit chase that. Okay. He wants Deborah to go with him, doesn't he? Okay. And we'll evaluate. We're not putting any evaluation on that right now. We're just saying he wants Deborah to go. To go with him. Okay, who, who else? We got some more people in this drama. Sisera, and who is Sisera? Okay, he's Jabin's commander. And what else do we know about Sisera? What's he have? 900 chariots of what? Chariots of iron. What does Barak have? He has 10,000 men. Who's outnumbered? Hmm? As far as military might, who is outnumbered? Barak is outnumbered. Even though he has 10,000 men, Sisera has 900 chariots of iron. Sisera has the military advantage over Barak. So you can see, you know, not only that, how many years have Jabin and Sisera been oppressing Israel? 20, is it 20 years? 20 years they've had the military upper hand to rule and reign and oppress Israel. So if you just kind of get that picture in your mind of what this situation is like and what they're coming up against, it helps you get a better picture of who Barak is and what's happening. Okay, more characters. Who else? JL, and who is she? Okay, she is Heber's wife. And what do we know about her? She's a Kenite. 
they, they are really kind of uh, relations by marriage through Moses. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a Kenite. So it's important in looking at that that she's really not an Israelite. She's a Kenite. They are distant, kind of just by marriage relatives. Okay? Anything else about her? Do they live near near live near Bayrak? No. Who do they live near? Who do they live near? Okay, so Heber has an alliance with Jabin. They're at peace with each other. I think if you look at I think if I'm correct, if you look at the map, he, they live more up near Jabin, is where they live. Okay, okay. Okay, anything else you want to put up here? Industrious, she used what she had, yes, yes. And, and we, as we move along in the story, we'll see a little more about what, what, what God says. Well, what does God say about her? When you go into the song of Deborah in chapter 5, how is she described? In 5.24. She is the most blessed of women. Yeah, the most blessed of women is JL. Okay. I think you could also almost, you know, when we say JL is Heber's wife, we could almost put up here Heber as one of the characters. I mean, he's in the background, but he's there. And do you notice, even, even Jabin, Jabin's kind of in the background. He's back there, and we know he's there, and we know he's having an influence on the events that are occurring, but the main person is Sisera. Sisera is the one in charge of the armies. He's the one that's going to go into battle, and he's the one that they're more afraid of than, than Jabin. Do you all see that? Okay. So we've got all of our characters, we've got our stage set, we can, we can pull back and see the, the dilemma that they are in, oppressed for 20 years by these people, outnumbered, out, you know, the military might is much greater than what they have. But at the same time, they have cried out in distress because we've had enough of this. And they cry, even though we know, it doesn't say it here, but the evil that we know that they do is they abandon the Lord and they worship the Baals and the Asherah, and that is what they are guilty of doing again and again. But they cry out to the Lord so to, for relief and for deliverance from their oppression and their distress, and God raises up Deborah and Barak. So let's, let's look at that exchange between these two people. Deborah, the prophetess, Barak, who's been told, you are the one. To go and lead these troops has not God command you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. So look at this question number four in your homework, and this is where we want to park for a minute. Um, Teresa said something over here just a minute ago. You've got two scenarios here of Barak. Was Barak showing a lack of faith and disobedience in not going unless Deborah went with him? Or could it be that Barak is actually 
relying on God, expressing his awareness of his own sense of inadequacy, and realizing the advantage of having Deborah with him. Which do you think it is? You like what? You like the second scenario? Why do you like that better, Nelda? Okay, okay. What have you mainly been taught? Number A, that he was a coward, okay? Okay, okay. Hang on, before I'm going to let you, I'm going to get to you. I want to write one thing up here for you all to, to consider the context. This is a good lesson in trying to figure this out of, of understanding this hermeneutical principle of consider the context. You know, words are placed in sentences, sentences are placed in paragraphs, paragraphs are in chapters, chapters are in books, books are in the whole Bible. So consider the context and also consider, especially in, in some of these Old Testament stories, this is where I'm challenging you. I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong at this point. I'll give you my opinion when we unpack this, get through thoroughly discussing it. But step back and say, in some of these really, really familiar stories, could it be I'm looking at it incorrectly? And what does the text really say? What does the context really say? Okay, Karen, I saw your hand up. And what's your point, if? Okay. Then I'll go. Okay. Okay. If you don't, I won't go. So he's, it's almost like he's putting a condition on it. Okay. In your mind. Yes, Tony. Okay, and what, and what would her presence bring to the table? Because she's what? Because she's a, because she's a prophetess. So, so God, yeah, she's a prophetess, and they know that she speaks for God. She is God's mouthpiece. And we've already said she's respected. They bring things to her. So, again, pulling from the context, there, it does lend credibility to he wants her there because she's going to lend some assurance and confidence and um, a stamp of approval that God really is with this because she's there. Okay? Other clues from the context. Does Deborah rebuke him? Not really. Yeah, Lynn. Mm-hmm. But think about where he is as well. Where is he? 
He's 10,000 men up against Sisera, 900 chariots, and Jabin, king of Canaan. Yes, baby. Go ahead, Tony. He probably had a lot more men as well. The, the, the chariot, I don't really know that much about chariots, and honestly, my time was limited to not be able to go rabbit chase and read about them. So if somebody else knows something about chariots. That would be, that would be a kind of a, a loose analogy that they were like a modern-day tank. But it, 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 it was, you're have, you have military equipment that your opponent does not have. You know, and the chariot is being pulled. Are they pulled by horses? Okay, so they can just sweep in and take you out rather quickly. Do you know anything about them, Scott? Yeah. On the chariot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very, very powerful. Iron was a new thing. This is kind of the beginning of the Iron Age. This was a new thing to have iron, and they, you know, the Israelites apparently didn't have that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, and think about where Barak, where did God tell Barak to go? You go up on Mount Tabor. You go up there. I'm going to draw Sisera out into this, this plain here near the Kishon River, which we'll talk about in a minute. So you're not, you're not fighting up on the mountain. You're fighting down in the plain where the chariots would also have the advantage as well. And that's what, where God has told him to take those men. You go up there, I'm going to draw him out, and then your men are going to come down. Now, think about, just put yourself in Bayrock's shoes right there for a minute. I am militarily outnumbered. I am mil- the, the, I'm as far as might and tools, and then you're going to also put me where they have the advantage as far as the terrain. I'd be a little scared, wouldn't you? Okay, but what does Barak do? He goes, doesn't he? He, he executes a plan, he carries it out, and he defeats the enemy. So he does go, he does do it. Deborah goes with him. Okay, back to the clues and coming to a conclusion. Is he being disobedient or is he showing a faith in his request for Deborah to go? Could she be? It is, I think one of the clues is, you know, when she says... I will surely go with you in verse 9. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. I think most of us have been taught to read that as, okay, I'll go with you, but you know what? You're not going to get the glory. Is that, is that true? Is that what you've been told? Could it be read without that tone, without that inflection? Remember, she's a prophetess. So it's just a statement of fact. Here's what's going to happen, Barak. Can I let you know as well 
that the road on which you're going is not going to lead to your glory. For the Lord will get, sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Put, the con, put it all back in the context again. Read the song of Deborah. Who gets the glory for this victory? No. Who gets the glory for this victory? God gets the glory for this victory. JL does not get the glory. God is the one. He is the one that gets the glory for what happens. Do you see what I'm saying? This challenged me because I've always been taught, well, he was just disobedient, and he was um, showing a great deal of lack of faith, and he was putting conditions on it saying, well, if you don't go, I'm not going. But if you read it differently, if you think back even to Moses in Exodus 33, where God calls Moses to deliver the people of Moses, and I'm paraphrasing greatly here, but Moses says, if you're not with us, we don't want to go. Don't take us out there. Don't lead us into this if you're not going with us, Lord. Could it be that, this, that that's some of what Barak is saying? If you're, not, if you're not going to go with us, Deborah, because you're God's spokesman, we don't want to be out there because, we, because I realize I'm outnumbered. And I realize I don't have any, any adequacy here, and it's going to have to be the Lord's doing. And, and I, I, we want you with us as we go forward in this. Do you see how completely different those two are? And you can read commentators, and they'll, they'll fall down on different sides. I will tell you that I only read one that fell down on the side that, that Barak was being disobedient and that he was a coward. Everybody else was coming at it from the standpoint of we need to relook at him and see him as a great man of faith. Because how is he described? Somebody go to Hebrews 11, uh, 33. Verse 33, I think. How's he described? He's in the hall of faith. Yeah. He is. Now, we'll see later that uh, Japheth is also in the Hall of Faith, and we're going to have a lot of problems with him. Samson's also in there, but who's not in there? Who's not in that Hall of Faith? Jael and Deborah are not in there. Barak is. He's in that list of people that have shown great faith in, in rising up and following God and defeating the enemy. So that's what I mean. We put all these pieces together. It's, it, and as I step back, I'm, I made me look at it differently that maybe he really does show a great deal of faith because he does go out there and he does execute the plan. He does lead those troops against all odds and he does do what God has said for him to do. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't, you know, the more I read the story, I don't think he was ever going to get the glory anyway. Because God was going to get the glory. He's the one that's going to get the, I don't know that God ever intended for Barak to get the glory. When you read that song of Deborah. So, uh, you know, he, yes, he knows. You're going, you're going to do this, and you know what? You're getting no glory for it, and he goes, knowing 
I'm not the one that's going to be remembered as the great person, although he really is in the Hall of Fame. That's a good point. Yes, yes. Do you all see that? You'll see it next week. Teresa knows because we've been talking Gideon. There, there'll be no question who gets the glory. It's God. He should not be able to win that battle at all. How was he able to win that battle? How was he? The Song of Deborah gives us the clues. Well, first of all, it says when um, go down to... Get on the right pages. Sorry, guys. Well, in verse 15, all it says is the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth, Hagawim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. How were they able to defeat Sisera? Why did Sisera get off of his chariot and run? They got stuck in the mud because what happened? What are the clues in the song Deborah? It sounds like a flash flood because if you go to those verses in chapter 5, look in verse 4 of 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. There's poetic language that it rained. And it says it again in um, what other verse? Oh, 21. Well, actually, starting in 20. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with might. So apparently, a, a big torrential rain came. Now, if Sisera led his troops down into that plain, what do you think he thought about as far as the safety of being able to do that? Sisera. Sisera takes his troops out there, so he is confident. I got the chariots. I'm out here on the plain. Those Israelites are coming down off of Mount Tabor. Would he have been there if he thought it was going to rain? So what does that tell you about what the season was? It would have normally been a dry bed. It was the dry season, and he had every confidence it was going to continue to be the dry season. So this is an anomaly that this has happened. Has anybody seen a flash flood? When we used to, we took our kids to Colorado 13 years in a row to an area um, outside of Buena Vista and to this, this Christian dude ranch. And you took this little road back up in to get to, to Deer Valley Ranch. And there was always this little dip in the road that you, you crossed over with the big sign, warning, prone to flash flooding. Now, I never saw it, 
because we were always there, you know, late July, early August, when the best it would do is the little light patter rain in the afternoon. But I heard about the times when it, the big rain would come, <clears throat> and it would flash through there, and, and, and th that little dry bed would be almost like a wide river, and you couldn't get across, which you either had to go a different route to get where you were going or just wait. Wait till it cleared up and dried up before you could get back into that valley in between the mountains. So I've never personally seen it, but, but I know how it can happen. And I know just even uh, a couple of years ago, there was a flash flood in Oklahoma City because my son's car got flooded up to the top of the windows in a matter of minutes because they got so much rain um, in just a very compacted short of time. And so all these cars were underwater <laughs> in an area that had never been underwater um, and all the cars flooded in that uh, apartment complex. So it can happen very quickly. And what that is where the chariot loses its military advantage because it will get stuck in the mire and the mud and cannot advance. So these men are getting off their chariots, running for their lives. Barak, with his men, can come in, swoop down, and kill them because now they have the advantage. They have the numbers. So who gets the glory in that? God got the glory. He, the creator and the controller of all natural elements, is the one in the midst of that dry season that said, rain, rain, and that will destroy them. Another thing that's a little bit interesting that I hadn't thought about, and only, only one commentator brought it up, but I think it carries weight. Who, who was Baal? The God of what? Fertility and storms. Storms. Can you imagine the confusion of these people if that's who they worship? And suddenly this out-of-season torrential rainstorm happens to them. That you can see how easily they were routed. They're probably wondering what in the world is going on here. Obviously, Yahweh is against us. Because remember, they would think in terms of, of, of local gods and their God is being defeated as well as all of this is happening. It's very interesting. Judges 5? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, it would. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been on a mountain when the rains come in? It's really scary. <laughs> and you want to get down below tree line really, really, really fast because the lightning is like hitting right beside you, and it does sound like a quaking. Yeah. Is part of your point the rain's coming there and it's just swooping? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Which that little dip in the road we would cross, the mountains were right there. We're, we're just kind of cutting in between two mountains, you know, a ridge range and then a 14-footer, Mount Princeton, right here. And so the rain coming from up there, that's what it's doing. It's swooping down off the mountain and coming down. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting picture when you start kind of imagining all this, isn't it?
I don't know. I did no one. No, no. I, I don't know. I did. I tend to think more in terms of what Noel's saying. Having been on a mountain when the storms come in, which they will come in almost every day around noon, it, it has when that lightning hits. It is so loud. It feels like a quaking. It really does. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm Mm -hmm. it's, it is dangerous it's very dangerous that's why when we when we go all those years if we went on hikes or mountain climbs you left very very early in the morning and you were back by noon or one because that's you wanted below tree line when those when those storms came in or you were a sitting duck to get hit by lightning so okay um, let's move on to kind of what we, we see what happens. We see that this is God's doing. Um, when, you, when we talk about God being the main character and he is the one that gets the glory, let's unpack that a little bit more. In looking at each of these people, how do you see God at work in this scenario? What are some of the things that are said about him all over the place? And if you're doing good observations, the Lord is always a key word or a key person, and you would mark that, and you would kind of go back and say, what, what's going on with him? What's he doing? What are some of the things that are said about him? Okay. Yeah. You know what? That's kind of a main character we've missed is Israel. Because all of this is happening because of Israel, isn't it? All these people are raised up because of him. Okay? He's the God of Israel. What else? What does he do? He, look, follow me here. Look, God, he speaks to Deborah, doesn't he? He is the mouthpiece that commissions Barak to go and lead this army. He is, God is the one, here he is again in the background. God is the one that commanded Barak to go. He's right there, isn't he? What does he do with Sisera? What does God say he's doing? Okay. He draws out. God subdues. God routed. Okay, do you see? He's God is the one that causes the rain to fall, the earth to quake. However, whatever we want to do with that. Okay. It's, it's the Lord here. It's the Lord that's behind the action of Jael. It's God's providence. Go back up to this verse in 4.11. I've kind of fallen in love with this verse. 
Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hoab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak Azananim and is near Kadesh. Now, why is that in there? <laughs> it's a good question. We're just reading along this great drama, and all of a sudden, now, Heber the Kenite, he moved. Picked up his tent, and if you look at the map, he's down here, and he moved up here. And you're like, why? Who cares? No, his wife's with him. J.L. went with him. Because God had a plan. Because God had a plan. Why is that in there? You look at it, and I remember the first time I read it, I thought, who cares? Why is that there? That is the driest little insertion, an otherwise interesting story. It's a bit of geographical trivia I really don't care about. Maybe that's in the Hazar Herald way back on page whatever. You know, oh, you know what? Heber and JL moved this week, and they're now relocated up here. It just seems so irrelevant until I read the rest of the story. Where does this little dry thing become important? Yeah, because they're down here. If I'm on the map, if you look at your map, they're down here, but they move up where Sisera is. So when Sisera's fleeing, where does he go? Who, who does he go? Where does he go? He goes to Heber's tent. He goes to J.L., and J.L. sees him and says, come on in here. Come on in. Take rest. And because Sisera is weary, he is fleeting for his life. He no longer has his chariot. Do you all see that that little bit of what we might say is a dry fact that seems to have been something the author should have edited out is really a divine appointment there? Who's behind that? Who is ultimately in the background behind that little dry fact, but God. God in his providence is back here somehow in the midst and wanting us, he's wanting us to know, you know what, even in that little on page 10 of the Hazar Herald where they moved, I'm in that. I'm in that because where does Sisera go? He goes to the tent of Jael and what does Jael do there? Kills him with a tent peg, the blood and guts glove. That is a brutal way to die. And I can't imagine doing that to somebody. But um, it's a little more. A little bit of humor. So he died. I hope he died. I looked at that too, and I said, "Why'd she give him milk?" He asked for water, and she gave him milk. And yogurt. It'd been like kind of like yogurt. I don't know. I searched everywhere. The best I could come up with is just you know you. I don't know. Do you have buy milk and? Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's not just holding the narrative, but it's the truth of that. Right. Right. 
Yeah, they do. A hospitality thing? Yes. To pass out. Does she? Because what she did was deceptive, and she lied, and she murdered. Yes. The midwives that killed the babies and Rahab and Joshua. Yeah, she does. She gets compared to that. Yeah. So it's, it's to, to talk about, that. I know. There was, well, and there was no, re- exactly because of that, there was no reason for him to think of her as an enemy. She was an ally. And he could feel safe there, and he apparently he does because he lays down and he goes to sleep. Yeah, come on in here. Yeah. It's all very interesting. And it's also interesting because she's not really an Israelite, so why would she be loyal to them and kill him, especially when they have a treaty with him? I don't have an answer for that either. I don't know. <laughs> And you kill him. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. These are, this is what's so interesting about this story is you can pick it apart on so many levels. And like Jim's brought up, there, people will have a whole sections on the ethical um, argument of her doing this and yet being called most blessed of women. So, but what I want you to see, what I want you to see out of this, I don't want you to get lost in that. I want you to see what is behind all of this and what is behind, look at the red, what's bleeding out from behind all of these people, all of these events is God at work, God at work, God at work, God at work. Look, at one verse we didn't really talk about. Go back to four... 14, and Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. I would underline this next sentence. Does not the Lord go out before you? Does not the Lord go out before you? 
You are outnumbered. You don't even know what I'm going to do. Do you see the great faith of these men and the great faith of Barak? And even if Deborah to go with him, they're believing that somehow, while the odds are totally against me, but somehow because God said it, God's going to do it. And he is behind, if he's not behind me, he's in front of me. He says, does not the Lord go out before you? I've got it. I've got it. I've got it taken care of. No worries here. Just follow me. And that is a picture of God as warrior. And that might be a little harder for us to wrap our heads around because that's not an image in peaceful America that we think about a lot. And it's not a, a characteristic of a God that we think about a lot. But God is also a warrior in that he will fight for his people. Do you all see that? He is military warrior. I am the one that's gone out before you to ensure the victory, even though everything is against you. The victory is assured because I'm out front. And that's what I want you to see from this, is how God is in all of it. God is even in those divine details of Heber moved north. You know, he picked up and moved from Florida to Vermont. I don't really care. Well, God cares because God was going to use his wife and sell Sisera into her hand because he was working out all of these details for his glory because who gets the glory in all of this? God gets the glory. It is his doing. It is God who is the one that has been faithful to his people, to his covenant promises, to everything that he said he would do. I will make of you a great nation, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember when we did that the very first week? I've got my covenant covered, and you all can do all, you can continue to walk away from me and do evil in my sight and go after those other gods, but you know what? I'm going to chasten, and I'm going to lure you back. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get you back and turn your eyes to me. And I'm the one that's going to fight for you because I've got a plan in history and I'm going to carry it out. It is for sure this is what's going to happen. Okay. Jim, are you going to talk about God using the women? I didn't get there. Okay. No, I'll just make a short point then. Because that was, you know, that was something to think about. He uses two women. In what, what's unusual about that? Well, they didn't have much standing. Is uh huh. Mm hmm. They had great faith. What does it show you about God? What did you learn about God this week? He can use anybody. It, it, here's what you should be seeing every week. The consistency of God and that he is staying true to his promises and he is carrying out his plan and he will do that. But the unpredictability about how he may go about doing that. He may use people or means that you never would have dreamed up. And that may include a Deborah, who is judge and prophetess, and a Jael, who isn't even an Israelite, but is in the right place at the right time and willing to do God's work, even if it is deceptive 
and breaking a lot of commandments. She kills him. So he can use a lot of different means and a lot of different people. And I think what it, sh- I think what it should show us is he, it shatters our conventions, conventional thinking of how we think God's going to work and, u- and use people, meaning he could use you. Or he could use someone you think there's no way he could use that person. I remember saying something to a godly woman one day about, I can't believe God, I'm just having a hard time that God could use this person who I thought, my opinion's a little inept. And she just said, Nancy, he used a talking donkey. (laughs) He can use anybody if he so chooses. I went, okay, okay. The other thing, I, and we're going to close, the other thing I, I think to see behind this, because I, well, I want you to see all that red coming out, and I wish I'd put more on there, is, is where God is. You'll look at your own life. You can look back at your life historically and at all those events that have happened in your life, but maybe I challenge you to look back at it theologically. Where was God in those things? Where was God in those minor details? that you think are just coincidences. Was God maybe there working in people, in events, in places to bring about his purposes in your life, in the life of the church, in the life of his kingdom? Because I I believe that he, in the same way he's working here, he's still working today. He's still there. What is he doing? Go back, look at those things in your life. and what You may not ever figure it out, But I think it's worthy of asking, where's your hand in this? Where's your hand in this? Because I can be sure that his hand is in this. Does that make sense? And then on the heels of the narrative, you've got the song. Okay? And which shows you this. This is where it's really, really valuable. Um, Go to Judges 5. This is going to be a little bit more of a hermeneutics lesson for you. I hope that you enjoy it. Actually, yeah, hold on, to, hold on to Judges 5, but also go to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can catch you off guard here, this will be fun. Turn to the Revelation. And this happens a couple of different times in the Revelation. Um, but if you look at Revelation chapter 6, it's the opening of the seals. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. Did you kind of hear that in the Judges 5? story. Um, The sun became black like sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Okay? Literal or figurative? Like how many of you read that and you're in the revelation and you're going, that's like a nuclear war. 
right? Because how many of you read that and you go, yeah, that's exactly what that's describing, this massive destruction and earthquakes and stars falling from the sky, and that's just crazy. Like, that's got to be describing some cataclysmic, world-ending issue, right? You, you guys see, hear me on that? Okay. So then, if that is true, then turn with me to Judges 5. And explain to me verse 20. What does it say? The stars what? The stars fought. How many of you when you read that went, wow, like a star came down from heaven and went onto the battlefield and fought Sisera? How many of you read that? How many of you went, okay, that's got to be a figure of speech? Okay, so I find it fascinating, and again, one of the things, it, it's, it does, it's not a ha, I got you, it's just like I want you to be able to create a hermeneutic, an interpretive way of looking at the Bible that's, all I'm asking you is to be consistent, right? Now, by the way, you could say, well, the genre over here demands that it's literal, and the genre over here demands that it's figurative. Okay, I can, I, I, I'm with you, I'm totally with you. God made the stars, the stars fought. Okay? One, but let me ask you this. Is the stars fighting in a song or in a narrative? It's in a song. So the song is actually using language. It's using representative language to explain something. So this is just kind of a fun thing for you guys to hold on to, is that when you see... Cosmic imagery when you see cosmic imagery in the prophets, in the songs, in the psalms, what does that symbolize? It's rather simple, actually. When it says the stars fought, what is the meaning behind that? God is at work. So let me ask you this, how many of you got from, um, not just from what Nancy taught, but even before Nancy said it, how many of you knew that God was the one that provided the victory? How do we explain that? And in the Bible, how they explain that is, the stars fought, the moon turned blood, the sun turned black. That is a description of the creator of those things do, using and doing those things, right? Right? And so we've got to break out a little bit of our um, kind of our Western scientific mindset when we hear that and we just think, well, that's nuclear war or that's the end of the world. And going, well, okay, you do realize, and I love to point this out, in Acts 2, Peter is quoting from Joel. And he is saying that the moon has turned blood red and he's describing all these cosmic images that are happening on the day of Pentecost. And we don't read them like apocalyptic images. In Acts 2, what's happening? God is breaking into and acting in human history. So you have Joel the prophet, that in those days the sun will turn black like, like cloth, the, the moon will turn blood red. Well, that's God will do something. That's how you interpret that. God will do something. God is moving. And in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes on Peter and the rest of the apostles, can you sense that God is doing something? 
right? And so that's how you need to look at that. So you got to be very careful of some of the baggage that we bring to the table. Okay, so that is a great example. The stars fought, and notice how much that song, I thought Nancy did a great job explaining this, as, as how much of that song gives absolute credit to who God is and what God is, has done. So I think that's really important. Another thing that I was actually prepared to, to talk about, because we end up doing this with figures, is that when we're looking at, oh, and by the way, oh, let, me, let me do this real fast, because I want to end this. Does anybody know of a very close parallel to this way of explaining biblical things? There's a, almost like a crazy quick parallel to these, to this story, but not about this story, but it's the same format. Exodus, I always remember it because it's got the same last digits, 1450. Exodus 14:15 does almost the exact same thing. Does anybody know what it's describing? Chariots being stuck in mud and water and God acting and it's what? The Red Sea. And the Red Sea walks through a very similar, the, the, the parallels are quite fascinating actually. The parallels between this, God is the one who is doing all of these amazing things. And Exodus 14 is narrative. Here's what happened. And Exodus 15 is the song of Moses. Here's what happened. And I think it's good for us to even recognize that. I, I had a student. Um, it, was a, it was a woman in all, of all wonderful things in honor of today's text. It was a young girl named Casey Burt. She was brilliant and one of my, one of my best students I ever had. And Casey her paper in my revelation class in college and she did this same format in the book of revelation saying that in the revelation you have narrative sections followed by songs and so she was describing how the songs become the interpretive key of interpreting the section before it and she followed she kind of this is how it's done in Exodus, this is how it's done in Judges, and then this is how John follows that same format in the Revelation. Brilliant, actually. thought it was quite, quite gifted. Um, so these are, and this is why it becomes helpful for us, there's a way of telling a story, and then there's a way of telling a story. Right? So, oh, say, can you see? Right? I could sing that story, couldn't I? By the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed. It, now, is that history? Yes. So it's describing it in song. Okay? So that's a, that's a great way to, to kind of think through. Go back and take a look at that and then just kind of notice um, the similarities. The second thing, which I was prepared to talk to you about, and then one thing I had to be working on back there, uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about is the danger of us personalizing a text. We get into trouble when we do this, actually. Um, so when we look at the text, we get wrapped up with Deborah. We get wrapped up with Barak. We get wrapped up with Jael. And we kind of get stuck in the text. So what would it be like if you were Jael? What would it be like? And we, we just start kind of living in that world. Um, you, know, um, you know what we need to do? You always need to tell a man more than once. Right? We, I mean, preachers do that all the time, don't they? They describe that all the time. Point is, I'm not even saying that's not true. Oh, that may or may not be true. 
can you, this is what I had professors would always say, like, can you support that idea with the text? That that really, the purpose of this text is just talking about how husbands need to be told more than once to do something. How many of you just go, yeah, that's Judges 4, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's really not Judges 4. And, and this is why I don't know when Nancy was going, hey, do you agree with that or not agree with that? You know, and, and, and her, I, I, I thought it was kind of fascinating. I'm glad Nancy said it. Because I would hate to go, hey, you know, if God can talk through a donkey, he can talk through a woman. <laughs> like, I'm glad Nancy is the one that said that, not me. Because I've never even thought that. But Nancy seems to think that that is... Uh, you were saying that just a few minutes ago, actually. Hey, God, get, did you not do the donkey? I thought I, thought I heard somebody talk about the donkey. So here's, here's the thing, is that when we, when we look at the text and we try to walk that way, I, I don't know if that's what the text is really driving at, although it may be actually true. I think it's good for us to go back and notice that Jesus picks these unschooled, uneducated disciples. So there, that is a historical truth. And so it does teach us some things about who God uses, the lowliest of. Okay, So that clearly is a repeated theme throughout Scripture, and I think it is very true in this text, right? I know. feel like you're being aggressive. Um, and it just always intimidates me, just saying. So when you look at it, it's like, yes, those are, those, are, those are actually truths throughout all of it. But it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you notice this. Like in the narrative, without personalizing it, when Deborah comes in, she already comes in. She's already presented as the judge ruling, which I thought was kind of fascinating. That it really doesn't have a lot of her, like you're going to see with the other ones. I love to ask, how is this judge different or similar to the other judges? And there's not a call on Deborah. There's none of that. There's no, hey, Deborah, here's what I need you to do, and I need you to rise. She's already judging. She's already exerted, which may explain why he says, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you go with, if don't go with me, I'm not going to go. Right? So it's not like she kind of arrives on the scene and now uh, Barak is trying to figure out what to do with her. She's already the representative of God for the people. She's already judging under the tree. She already has that kind of that stature, so to speak. And it is in that context. See, if she had not been already presented as the one God is appointed and the one God is actually using and the one that God is actually working through, I think I'd be a little more critical of Barak's conversation. But in the end, I think it's, it's good for us to realize that these things are descriptive of kind of a bigger picture. This is why you got to be careful of just personalizing Deborah like she's more than a woman, right? This is where I, one of the things I love to do is I love to, and by the way, Barak's more than a man, and so is Moses and Noah, right? We where, where do you get that from? And so one of the classes I taught was on um, uh, kind of basically like interpretive issues, issues of interpretation is what it was called. And when people want to make their own agenda with the text, which we all have to be careful with, right? So to, I'm not going, yeah, and I'm free of that. No, we all have to be careful of doing that. But then all of a sudden we see, whether that be Mary or whether that be Deborah, we see her as this and not necessarily what the text is trying to present to us. And I just, I think there's always a caution. That's why I want to come back and say, show me from the wording of the text 
that that's what's going on. Now, you might want to go back and look historically. I, I think one thing that is at least important to note when we're reading the Bible, so I'm not going to talk about kind of the big, bigger woman's issues picture, but some scholars would point out that the fact that the woman is the one who rescues more than anything else is a sign of a broken culture. Does that make sense? So the fact that God is, is not even just so much a sign that, wow, look, God can use anybody. Sure. But it's actually a sign of, wow, God, there's been so much abdication that is actually going on. Okay? Now you might go, well, show me that in the text. Well, let, me, let me show you some things that are, I think are kind of interesting. So, and I want to kind of hold off the, the, the barracks if type piece because I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the conditional clause that he uses there. But look at 5.2. Like what's happening in 5.2? That the leaders took the lead in Israel. I think that's kind of an interesting statement. What do you mean the leaders took the lead? I don't know if you followed this through the text. There is this constant song of praise, but in many instances, and not all, and, and notice this, a big part of Judges is that when God comes and God says to, say, to Barak or to whoever, let's go and do this, what is their response to it? Right, And you've got a number of people going, I'm not going. Like, I don't want to, how do I get out of this? A little bit like, and by the way, it's not just the judges. What did Moses do in Exodus 3 when he sees the burning bush? No, I don't want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. Send someone else, right? So he is trying to abdicate that. So you have Deborah, and the fact that she is a woman may be more of a sign of a broken society of a broken culture where people are not doing, and by the way, Judge is already supporting that idea, isn't it? In those days, Israel had no leader, had no king, and each man did as he saw fit. So you see that. And then the other part that I just think is interesting, and I just didn't have the time to kind of fully unpack it. Um, take a look at, where do we want to start? I guess, go to verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song, arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then they marched down the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From e now they're going to start listing tribes. From Ephraim, their route they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down with commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Question, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. What does that mean? 
They didn't come. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships in the north? Asher sat still across the coast of the sea, staying in his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the depth, Naphtali too on the heights of the field. So what do you actually have here? You have in the narrative itself this who is rising up, and the answer is some. And who is not rising up, the answer is some. And from that, I think you can actually see that what is being described here is not just a woman who and a man who, but the greater picture far beyond Deborah and Barak and then Jael the Kenite. But you really have, and so you don't have Jael on this side. But how they represent what's going on with Israel. Again, you need to hold on to the overarching narrative which is more than just a woman who and a guy who. It's a nation who. It's the nation that is at stake. And so as much as God raises up Deborah or Samson or whoever, it is a nation that needs to respond to who God is. And it is a nation that God saves. So if it was just about individuals, then God would just say, hey, Deborah, I'm going to take care of you. Uh, Just move over here and I'll kind of erect a kind of a fence around you and you'll be fine. But no, Deborah is involved in leading her people. Even Barak here is involved in leading God's people. And then you have, like in the song itself, you have tribes who rush, who I, I thought it was interesting, the searching of hearts. The searching of hearts. Um, I didn't have time to kind of go back and look at this, but if you remember when they're first taking over the land, do you remember how they, what they do to the, when, when they're coming up on the, uh, I guess, the east side of the Jordan? They divide up and they look on the, on the other side of the Jordan, right? The part that's actually now in Syria and that. If you look on that side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, what did three tribes want to do? They wanted to stay there. We're just going to stay on this side. When they decided to stay there, what was the immediate response of the leaders of Israel? Well, but they did, they said something. They were ready to go to war because they saw it as a violation of the covenant to not engage in the conquest. And then, I think it's, isn't it Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? I think are the three, if I still remember from my dad when I was a kid. Gad, Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, on the eastern side, they said, whoa, 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 wait a second. Everybody calm down. We weren't saying we were going to stay here. We're going to kind of settle down, and then when you guys get ready for the conquest, we're going to come with you. And the other tribe said, okay, you better, because if not, we will come and we will enact vengeance and war. So there is this already hanging around in Israel's history, who is going to go off to battle and who is going to avoid the the conflict, okay? You're going to see that over and over again. Um, There's going to be a narrative coming up, a very complicated narrative, where a woman is brutally killed, and then someone takes her body, cuts her up, and sends it to the tribes, and basically says, hey, we need to go to war. And so watch in the book of Judges when it says, and all Israel marched out as one man. Okay? Which I would say is even kind of runs beyond... Um, beyond the judges, because you actually have, why, do we, why did the Levites get this wonderful priestly place? Because they were the ones that struck down their brothers without any 
convictions. That's why killing in the Bible, there's eight different words for kill. And there's a difference between murder and then that righteous killing, which was what JL did. So she's not guilty of murder. She rightly killed. Okay? And so you have that, you have that in this story. So who comes to the aid? Who does not come to the aid? This is kind of a major theme in this period of Israel's history, okay? Because you're actually looking at what's happening here and how God is using Deborah and how God is using Barak, but how the two of them are a sign of what is or is not happening in Israel and who or is not assuming the responsibility, okay? So let me just, before I leave this part and move on to my last part I want to talk about, let me step into application. So I want to leave the text beside, because I'm, I'm telling you, be careful of personalizing this, okay? But also, there is a right time to personalize this. So I'm not saying, don't think of Deborah and don't think of Barak, but all of us, what happens when someone in a marriage or in a relationship abdicates their responsibility? What happens when a, when a woman or a wife or a mother says, I don't want to be a woman or a wife or a mother. What happens to a person and a marriage and a family? Yeah. Or when a husband, a male, a father says, yeah, I don't want to do that. I get this question a lot, by the way. I've got a spouse, and I've, I've had men complain of husbands, and I've had husbands complain of wives, and they are completely absent in this. And I, two things I want to point out, as we've already seen in this text, that number one, what happens when people abdicate, and I don't think it's Barack. I think I line up mostly with what Nancy was describing. Um, there is maybe some hesitation, but if anything, it's Israel that's abdicating. And the ultimate that we actually see is that it is, without hesitation, Yahweh who steps in to protect and to provide. And that in that instance, that when there is an abdication, I don't know if I want to say always, but I consistently see God as doing this through the most interesting people. And that's, I think, kind of how we get to this, how do you describe Deborah? There appears to be, all the way through the text, an abdication of responsibility. An ab JL abdicated? Oh, sure, yeah. Yep. 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 So, that, in that sense, God's never behind it. I mean... How many of you know of someone who is really struggling with a relationship because somebody is not carrying their weight at whatever level? So what do you do? And you know what I always, what's, what's really interesting, looking at this text, and I'm in application, the one thing that does not seem to be an option is further abdication. Like that's what I never actually see. Um... Andrea's not doing her job at home, not kind of filling out her responsibilities at home. So I'm not going to. If she's not going to, I'm not going to. Like how many of you go, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said. Yeah, that's exactly the pattern that we see in the Old Testament. No, if 
If Andrea is failing at home and not doing what she needs to be doing, then what? Then get to work. But I'm not. And think about how this narrative, both at the smallest point, but then how that even feeds back into the societal and the bigger piece. At the individual level, uh, society is nothing more than the, break, the, than the bringing together of all of these individual pieces, correct? And so when I think about the failure of spiritual leadership or the failure of fidelity or the failure of you name it, so what do we do? Well, the one thing I, I tell this to, to women who really struggle with this, with a husband who does not want to assume, particularly I see a lot, um, the spiritual leader of the home. So what am I supposed to just, well, you got, you want, I, I think you want to do it without somehow completely circumventing and emasculating him. But if your husband's not going to lead in the home, spiritually speaking, someone still has to lead. And to do that with grace and to do that with, uh, even I would argue, a submissive spirit ultimately to the Lord is an, is an incredible thing. I, I, by the way, I see it done a lot. I see some amazing people who step up and do that. I, and, I, and, I, and I see some amazing men who step in um, and kind of fill the roles when a woman backs out of her responsibility. Um, I like to use this, though, as kind of a sobering reminder of that a lot of the problems that we have in our society, as much as I wish I could blame someone, like I don't know if I have a name, right? Who, whose fault is it that all these marriages are in trouble? What's his name? Okay, well, sure. Okay, yeah, we could go there. Um, Satan. Uh, as we look at as we look at how to get, how do I fix that? How do I fix Satan? Um, I, I have to recognize that there's some part that I can't control and I have to leave to God. And then I get to at least look around and go, but God has given me a responsibility. God has given me some things that I cannot abdicate on, and I need to own up and do my part here, and kind of recognize. So I think it can be a real sobering thing. Um, th- this is kind of one of the typical ways in which this text is applied. And I don't think it's a bad application of the text. I really don't. I, don't. I think the text is calling far more what Nancy was describing, God's sovereignty, God, God providing that protection and God providing that. But there are some phenomenal examples that we see in this text that do call us applicationally to do the right thing, to step up and to, uh, uh, to, to do what God has called us to do. Thoughts, questions, comments? Bueller? Bueller? Okay. Um, one more thought. What do you do with the Hebrew word im? A conditional clause, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes translate the Aleph and a Mem, uh, translated if. What do we do with that, right? And I, by the way, it's, it's not even wrong to go, well, it sounds conditional. If, it really sounds like he's not. If, correct? Okay. Now, what's interesting is, is that there is a, for the first thing I wanted to do was check and see whether or not the condition was wrapped up in the verb itself or it had its own word, which is 
one of the things I'll always tell people, just be careful when you're reading your Bible to hang your hat on a really small word because there are many times in which that word does not even exist in the Hebrew or the Greek. It is something known as a word that is A-I-T, uh, assists in translation. Or if you're looking in a concordance, it sometimes says N-I-G or N-I-H, which means not in Greek or not in Hebrew. Okay, So you'd be surprised at the number of words that are needed in order to kind of string along a, kind of a, a, a thought that's logical. Okay, Now, Here's a, here's a great kind of an interesting thing, is the word is often translated if. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. And if you do this, I will do this. So there is a point in which this is condition. To make it fun, I think God does this. Guess the other way this word can be translated. Since. Or... When? So, does that totally change how you would interpret that? Okay? So the word, sometimes when it appears to be like it's conditional, then they would, they would go, okay, we've got to read the context. What are they actually? They use the word im. Now, are they, since you're going to do this, then I'm going to do this. Or is it if you do this? then I will do this. And sometimes it's hard to tell, literally. Um, this is actually really common in the, in the Greek vernacular. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the big debate about whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation. Have anybody of you heard that about that debate? Yeah, everybody talks about it. Um, what's really interesting is, is that there are some times in which in the Greek construction, it's the exact same. It's a different word, but it's the exact same construction. Paul says, if you remain in the faith in Colossians, if you remain faithful in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, if you do not fall away. And the whole question becomes, is that if something that is contrary to fact, like, like if that could ever happen, like if I, if I grow wings and fly, right? You have to take a look at, again, the context to really get a sense as to whether or not this is this or this is this. Because how many of you would totally change how you would interpret what Barak says to Deborah? Okay? Now, here's what I would tell you. If you asked me, I had to go back and I, I haven't spent as much time as I would like. I'd probably 10 minutes or back when I was looking at this. I think this is probably the best way to translate it. And I really do think it's a condition. I think that's where I would ultimately end up. But it does caution me, though, against reading it like he is reluctant. I don't think he is reluctant. I think it can be, um, hey, if, you're, if you can make it at 1 o'clock, then I'll be there. Is that reluctant? Am I going, hey, you know, if, if you honestly, if you can make that appointment by 1 o'clock, Candy, I'll be there. I'll meet you there. Candy doesn't go, oh, if? So what are you saying? Actually, I just said if you're going to be there at 1, I'll be there. That's what I said. But I don't understand the problem. We'll use the word if. No, 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 no. So be very careful kind of reading too much into that. I always like to ask, is there anything else in the text that is continually um, implying that this character or this group of individuals are being in some level reluctant or not? 
and I, I think from reading, I think if you, I would just walk in without studying this, I think I would have lined up with the, yeah, you know, men aren't doing their jobs, and Barak particularly is not doing his job, and doesn't want to do, and then the more I looked at the text, I went, ah, might not be there. And I was reading a lot into a word that the translators chose this, and they, I doubt if they could have used this, because I really do think that's the best one. But then where do we get that, oh, he seems so reluctant. Probably not in the text. Yeah. 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 Well, again, but then you have to add the what was so hard about that, right? And, and, but, that's where, but that's where we bring our own personalizing of the text into the text. Now, all of a sudden, I would just say, I'm not even saying don't do it. I'm not even saying, I'm just saying you really have to kind of put the brakes on, I do, put the brakes on some of these things because I begin to, impl- I begin to imply everything that I do. When you look at the text... Sometimes you go, oh, it's less fun. I really like making a bunch out of you got to tell men five times. And I, preachers are notorious for screwing this up. And man, I really wanted to make that a big condition. And every time I want to do that, the text, the text itself fights against me and says, ah, there's something deeper here. There's something bigger here. Okay? La- go ahead. And that's the, the part, well, and the part, exactly, that's why the, 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 it's the problem with emphasis. Like, what do you want to emphasize? And so when you're looking at a text, that's why you got to go back and say, let's bring it out from the wording of the text. And again, if I were to read it to you in Hebrew, you wouldn't go, oh, yeah, that's what I say to my kids all the time. What would you say? Actually, I never speak to my kids in Hebrew, so I have no idea what you're even saying. <laughs> right? So it, it, it is. Like, for example, um, this is where the construction in the text, I know I, some of you might already be thinking, which is, are you telling me, do I have to know Hebrew to interpret the Bible? No. But here's a great lesson I want to tell everybody. If you're going to make a big deal about this, okay, and you're going to make a big deal about character, basically doing some real character analysis off that, then you're just probably being foolish. That's all I'm saying. It's not that this word doesn't matter or whatever, but when we want to add all that into it, you know, my mother-in-law is a classic example of this. She always takes these little tiny things and wants to just hang on to them like somehow these are God's great words to her and this and that. And it's fascinating to point out, yeah, Mom, that's not in the text. Well, but I want it to be. I'm sure you do because that will really fit your theology, which, again, our job isn't to make the Bible fit our theology, but it's ours to. Now, here's what I wish I would have spent my time on, and I have about two minutes to do this. This is a fascinating thing, and I, I, I really, um, I've kind of talked about this before. Um, circle these words, which I think are quite fascinating, and then I'm going to just kind of leave this with you, and you can take a look at it. And this word appears over and over and over again. Um, take a look at verse 2. What did God do to Israel? 
He sold them. Say, so you guys, did you, I didn't hear, do, do you guys, did you bring that up this morning? I'm not saying you had to, but did you talk about that at all? No? I thought that was just an interesting word. And it literally, here, here's the part that's fascinating. When I began to do a word study on that, it's just the word for sell. It's what they did to Joseph. It's almost always used of slaves to put them into bondage, which fits very well in Judges. The other place in which it's used, actually, yes, where is it? Is it in the narrative or is it in the song? Yes. Yeah. And it is the exact same Hebrew word. So it's not like it's two different. It's the exact same word. So the Lord, it's, it's this concept of sold. And you see it in God does this to the Israelites. And then after that, God does this to Sisera. Okay? And it's, it's kind of interesting because if I were to ever say to you, like, would God ever sell rebellious people into their rebellious ways our typical church answer is what no he would never do that he does it all the time so this is one piece that i just want you to kind of be aware of because i need this fodder for another time when i'm going to be teaching in judges this is a repeated pattern and by the way god promises this is what i thought was kind of funny god promises that if this word you remain faithful to him, he will remain faithful to you. But if you rebel against him, guess what he says? He will sell you into captivity. And God uses that exact same structure, using both the im as well as the Hebrew word for soul. Okay. Uh, that's all I got. Any final questions? Done a minute early. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this time and for an opportunity that we have to study your word. I thank you for Deborah and for Barak, for JL, um, for people in different circumstances, each doing what you've called them to do. Um, what a great example Deborah is to us. And I pray that we would rise and not only call her blessed, uh, but just realize just your faithful giving um, of yourself and raising up people to do what is right. And for Barak and for his faithfulness and for JL who on the outside of the community recognizes who you are and what you're doing and is your servant. Uh, just what a great way to think about our own lives, um, Father, seeing your hand on us. And yet, if we were to look at it, we've got so much more going for us than all three of those combined. For we have been given Jesus. And so what an incredible opportunity that we have, Father, to know the truth and to speak the truth, to see, in fact, what you are doing and to be actively engaged in all of that. Father, we do that for your glory and for your purposes. May it be to the benefit of those around us and may it be our greatest joy and passion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.